Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife. Today, we're talking about palliative care. If you want to refresh your memory, we did have an episode with Dr. Zara Cooper a few years back, and we'll link to it in our show notes. In that episode, we discussed informed consent, discussing end-of-life care, and managing malignant bowel obstructions. And we're going to continue the discussion with further topics in palliative medicine. Um, With us, we have Red Hoffman. She is an acute care surgeon at Mission Hospital in Asheville, North Carolina. She is also board certified in hospice and palliative medicine and is the founder and host of the Surgical Palliative Care podcast. We also have with us Fabian Johnston. He's an associate professor of surgery and oncology, chief of gastrointestinal surgical oncology, director of the peritoneal surface malignancy program, and program director of the complex general surgical oncology fellowship at Johns Hopkins University. Also with us, we have Susan McCammon. She is the John W. Pointer Endowed Professor in Otolaryngology at the University of Alabama, Birmingham. Thank you both for joining us. Thanks Thanks for having us. So we always like to start our episodes asking you to tell us a bit about yourselves. Where are you from? And how did you get interested in palliative care? So I was lucky enough to go to medical school at OHSU School of Medicine in Portland, Oregon. And Oregon is the birthplace of the death with dignity movement. And OHSU is actually the birthplace of the pulsed form. So palliative care was really integrated into my medical school training. I did a fourth year elective with the palliative care team that really blew my mind. They were just excellent communicators and I definitely wanted to learn more. Um, In residency, my program did not have a palliative care team, and so I got to see a lot of suffering and got to see where palliative care could really be well integrated into the care of surgical patients. And so that led me to want to eventually pursue a fellowship in palliative care, which I did after pursuing a fellowship in surgical critical care. And now I practice in Asheville, North Carolina, where I work as an acute care surgeon and pick up some hospice shifts and do a lot of primary palliative care. So I um, grew up in Alabama and trained at the University of Alabama in otolaryngology, head and neck surgery, and decided to pursue fellowship training in head and neck surgical oncology. And that was my primary training was head and neck cancer surgery. And in the aftermath of um, a hurricane in Galveston, Texas in 2008, I wound up doing a lot of community outreach for patients who had lost access to care and became a medical director of a hospice in order to help take care of my head and neck cancer patients. Um, And through that, I became eligible to take the boards in palliative care. And the more I learned, the more applicable it seemed to my practice in head and neck cancer surgery for patients who have um, complex decisions uh, for treatment and prolonged symptom burdens. And um, I learned the more it seemed relevant. And I was lucky to be recruited back to Alabama to take a position doing 50% head and neck cancer surgery and 50% palliative and supportive care. 
So my story, um, <clears throat> so full disclaimer, I am um, not a palliative care boarded physician. I tell everybody I'm a palliative care groupie. And so um, I actually, when I started um, medical school and residency, I had no clue what palliative care was, but I saw um, the enormity of the burden of disease on, on these patients. Um, and I saw that, um, my attendings didn't um, didn't always do a good job of communicating, and I thought we were um, um, hurting people after a period of time. And I thought that there could be a better way. And so, and also, I saw uh, <clears throat> certainly disparities as it pertained to um, uh, cancer outcomes and uh, who did and who did not receive uh, care. And so, when I came out of the lab as a translational researcher. Um, is the first time I heard about palliative care, and uh, at the, the 2000, um, um, uh, 2010, when Jennifer Temple's paper, landmark paper uh, came out um, on concurrent palliative care, and happened to uh, happened upon it and read it, and I was like, "That's uh, I was looking for my thing because I knew I wasn't uh, going to be a translational researcher, and I knew I was going to get a master's, and so." Um, I knew that was going to be where I went, and so I um, did my surgeon fellowship at Hopkins, which allowed me to get a master's in, um, while I was there, and I am now a uh, funded, uh, K award funded palliative care researcher, and I uh, would say I uh, practice some version of primary palliative care um, regularly, and I uh, proselytize with my colleagues throughout conferences and make sure that our fellows and residents have adequate palliative care knowledge. That's great. I wanted to actually ask both of you a little more in detail to what extent you're practicing this palliative medicine. So, Red, you talked about how you pick up some hospice shifts and Dr. Um, and Fabian, you talked about how you um, you're doing research in palliative medicine. So how, like what percentage of your practice or your, you know, your daily work hours are you dedicating to palliative medicine? Sure. So I would, uh, so by the letter of the law, 75% of my time is dedicated to palliative care. And so I actually, um, actually more than that. So I'm also a site PI of the first ever concurrent palliative care, uh, trial for surgical patients, uh, for, for, I should say, uh, operable surgical patients. And so um, at Hopkins, we're the highest accruing site for this PCORI study, um, which takes up some of my time. And then I have another study in PCORI where I'm a co-investigator in survivorship. And so I would say I kind of live and breathe this um, daily. Um, and think about, um, and I'm currently is before we got early on, I told you guys, I submitted R01. So I submitted R01 last month, um, for, um, frontline palliative care, um, for surgical disparities in palliative care. And another one I'm submitting next week for, um, surgical, for disparities, and uh, overall in all advanced cancer patients. And so, uh, I, I do this, I, I think about this all the time. And so, and I'm a surgical oncologist and I do advanced GI malignancies. Um, and so, you know, um, I would say that my practice is grounded in this and grounded in principles. Um, and I try and make sure that um, both my patients receive the care uh, and that the trainees 
um, think about these things uh, holistically and not just think about cutting another tumor out. I like that idea of saying that my practice is grounded in these principles. I would agree with that. I think I think about the idea of palliative care, um, goals of care discussions, code status discussions, making sure I'm giving goal concordant care every day that I'm on service. Certainly some services like my weeks in the ICU, I do a lot more primary palliative care where I think the goals of care discussions are um, extremely relevant. And some days I don't do as much, but certainly um, every day I'm having at least some discussions around goals of care or code status. I like to make sure, and I tell my residents this, anyone leaving the hospital who is being discharged to anywhere other than home needs to be going out with a pulsed form or a most form, whatever it's called in your state. So we talk a lot about how do we do that well. And then, like I said, two to three days a month, I will um, be the attending at our local inpatient hospice, which is fascinating because sometimes I get to take care of patients that were on my surgical or ICU service and get to bring those um, surgeon eyes and do some teaching around wound care or abtheras into the local hospice so that they feel even more comfortable caring for surgical patients. So I really, although my appointment is 50-50, I really try to make it an integrated, unified whole. And so um, on a day-to-day -day basis, I operate um, two days a week, typically with two rooms, Monday and Friday. And two days a week, I do clinic, half head and neck cancer and half uh, palliative and supportive care. And then in my administrative time, I run the community-based palliative care program to bring outreach and supportive care to cancer patients um, in the rural areas of Alabama, which are all the areas of Alabama. So that's how the time splits up on a on a day-to-day -day basis. That's great. It's uh, interesting how all three of you have a very different uh, way in which it's integrated into your practice. Um, so that actually ties in to, I think the central theme was that you all palliative medicine is an underlying um, part of your practice. And part of surgical training involves these discussions about code status and, um, you know, things that affect uh, palliative medicine. So my question for you all is, do you think that we should have specific training for palliative care within our surgical training, as opposed to it seems like all of you had to go a little bit outside of your surgical training to um, get that information? So let's start with Red. Yeah, I feel very strongly in my perfect world, everyone would do a month with the palliative care team. That's what they're doing right now at OHSU. And I think that um, they haven't published their results yet, but I think that it looks like they're having great success and that even their um, young interns are able to integrate this work into their um, daily practice with patients on multiple subspecialties. So I try to speak about this on a daily basis with both the medical students and the residents, but I feel that a lot of these skills are skills that can be taught and then um, perfected over time. And so, yes, I wish it was more integrated into all of our training. Yes, absolutely. I think that there is 
there's a dual role. There's a role for training our um, surgical trainees in more comfortable and effective communication with patients about high-risk decisions um, that will affect um, their quality of life and potentially their end of life. And I think our trainees are hungry for that. I find that um, when they when they are in the operating room and they don't have a chance to go on the consult with me, they're very eager to hear about it later. And so I think I think it's uh, this is now is a great time to really incorporate that into their primary palliative care training. And then I think this is really it's really important that we have surgeons who are champions for specialized palliative care for um, patients with surgical disease. Um, and so I think that, you know, that's where the three of us come in and our colleagues who are willing to really sort of put our foot down and say, this is this is part of our identity, this is who we are and we're gonna be specialized and we're gonna help train people in both um, primary advanced, you know, primary communication skills, and then in more advanced um, symptom management and complex decision making. So, yeah, simple answer clearly is yes. Um, I, I tell everybody, you know, palliative care is rooted in surgery, right? Surgeon coined the term, right? And so um, I think that we should certainly be focusing on that. How you do it is going to be the question, right? And, increasing um, need in ACGME residencies. Um, every year, they're trying to add more and more onto it, uh, onto the training and what you guys need to know. Um, and so how do you do that? I certainly am also, I'm a proponent um, that uh, this should be basically all fellowship programs. Um, and so I certainly focus on surgical oncology because that's what I know. But, you know, I, we wrote, my group wrote a paper showing about the paucity of training. And since then, a lot of other papers have certainly come out. Um, and this is where you're really integrating. You know, you're, you're, you're about to launch. And so we have uh, dying oncology. Many fellowships have their um, fellows rotate on palliative care. In our search oncology fellowship, we have our fellows do two to four weeks in palliative care in their second year. Um, and so that there, um, you know, there is gradation, there is, you know, the primary palliative care, I think uh, all trainees should know, and I think at another level um, that, you know, if you don't do a fellowship, you could still provide that care that your patients need and that many people want to provide. And I think it grounds some folks too, to be honest with you, when they start um, really embedding with the palliative care team. Often happens, you know. You know, I was on our tumor board today, and people were like, "This patient is so young. We got to do something." It's like, okay, but <laughs> what <Right>. about <laughs> what about the symptoms that they're having, right? You know, or you know, there's this older gentleman. You know, I think he can go through X, Y, Z. It's like, okay, but did you talk to him about what the downside of an operation would be? Can you talk about what's going on with their family members and how they're going to be supported? So, you know, we can't be, we, we preach to you residents to focus, you know, on everything, but yet we don't really focus on everything, right? So. So also kind of along those lines is, you know, what is the resident role during training in um, some of these aspects, um, specifically like family discussions, discussing code status, discussing DNR status. 
is it service dependent? Is it, um, yeah, basically is it service dependent or how, what do you think the, the resident's role should be? And I'll tell you specifically, I had been as a junior resident in a situation where nobody was available and a patient I was just seeing for the first day, I was told to run the family meeting and it was very uncomfortable. Um, Luckily in medical school, I had kind of seen some of these discussions and I had a little bit of exposure during residency prior to that. Uh, So I I think I handled it okay, but I just did not feel at the time that it was appropriate for me as a junior resident to be doing that. But I think other people have different perspectives. So I'm, you know, would love to hear what you have to say. Uh, Maybe Fabian, you can start this time. Um, I'm going to try not to be long-winded. Um, I, I was on, I was in an intern and, um, some gentleman was shocked and we saved him and then he coded and he died and everyone was operating. And they, my chief said to me, go run the family meeting. And I got to tell you, I thought I was a bad man. I thought I was doing a great job in hindsight. I, you know, after I came out of lab, I was like, what? What was I even? Why did somebody even put me in that position, right? And so, so to, to, there is certainly a resident role, but I think it's grade, graded responsibility, just like everything else we do, right? Um, and so, you know, you, we don't they, don't they don't just say, you know, go ahead and do this Whipple, <laughs> right? We don't do that, right? Just go ahead. Go ahead and do this, you know, radical neck dissection. You're ready for the, the, you know, the the gunshot wound to the IVC. That's what these conversations are, right? They, you can really screw something up, right? You can screw up an experience for a family that lasts a lifetime. And so, you know, I think, you know, we it, the greater responsibility should be there. Absolutely, I feel like a lot of a lot of this work is imposed on our junior residents um, to have the family meeting, to get the DNR, to deliver the bad news. Um, and it's it's a big burden and they have little training and they're like Fabian said, there are huge repercussions. And so, I mean, as I trained, that was absolutely, it was kind of the, you know, that was the, that was the scut at the end of the shift is go talk to the family, go deliver this news. And, and there was often, you know, the, a lot of value attached to the outcome, not what are the patient's goals, but get the DNR, get the consent, let's move forward with our plan. And I think that puts trainees in a really uh, difficult position, one that they've been in for, you know, more time than they've not been in. But I think that part of our role is to, to recognize, you know, the importance of that position and the importance of being trained and supervised and supported in having those conversations. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. I love, you know, uh, Dr. Jeff Dunn, when he talks about the family meeting, he compares it to a surgical procedure in which we prepare, do, and close. And like Fabian was mentioning, it's this idea of graduated responsibility. I'm not going to send my intern in to do a procedure that they've maybe seen once or twice and not give them any sort of um, oversight. And I think that if you think of the family meeting like a procedure where you really do have to prepare, there's a lot of work that goes into preparing for a good family meeting, um, that it's not really 
appropriate to be it's kind of a setup for failure if you're sending a, a new intern in. At the same time, I want residents to feel empowered that after watching some of these family meetings, and I always say, especially if you either have a good surgical mentor who is, is skilled at communication, or whenever you consult the palliative care team on your patient, you should be going to these family meetings and watching what they do. Because the way I learned was by being a fourth year medical student, um, watching the palliative care team. And I think I learned a lot just from watching them. So I think that's one way to learn how to do some of these skills. Great advice. So at your institutions, at what point do you involve a palliative care team if you have them? And it sounds like all, th all three of you do. Um, and another personal anecdote is that I have worked with some acute care surgeons specifically who feel that the preliminary conversations uh, you know, must be with the surgeon or the, the primary care team member. Um, while a lot of studies say that you should um, have the palliative care team involved from a very early point. So where's that balance? I think that depends a lot upon the uh, per particular attendings comfort with doing this and also with how much time you have. So I love to have these preliminary discussions myself. And then depending on how busy the service is, sometimes I'll walk the patient all the way through to, you know, say withdrawal of life-sustaining treatment and be with them while they're dying or get them to hospice and then take care of them in hospice. And some some weeks on service, that just doesn't that just doesn't work at all. So I think it's attending dependent and service dependent. I will say though that I personally feel having trained in hospice and palliative medicine that these palliative medicine providers, they are precious resources. There's very few of them. So if we're consulting palliative care just to, oh, can you get a code status on that patient? That's not appropriate. We should be having those primary palliative care discussions with our patients. And what I like to use the palliative care team for is that more specialized palliative care, either really difficult symptom management or perhaps like really I don't want to say difficult family, but a family that say has a lot of different opinions or a large family where no one is on the same page, or sometimes it's just a devastating injury in a really young patient that not only do I need the support, but the nurses need the support. And I just can't be there to give it to them. And one other thing is that when you consult, when I'm doing palliative care, it's me. But when you consult the palliative care team, you're getting that multidisciplinary care. So you're getting a provider and then you're getting a nurse and you're getting a social worker and you're getting a chaplain. And some of these situations really deserve that multidisciplinary care. Yeah. So this has been one of the challenges in figuring out my practice um, in this divided fashion, because my colleagues come to me and they say, can you you know, you're a palliative person, can you do this consult? And I want to, and I, I frequently have the time, well, I sometimes have the time to, but as Red says, there's a difference between just me showing up and, you know, having a good conversation versus really being plugged into the, the palliative care team approach. And so I've really worked with my palliative care inpatient consult providers to say, you know, I want to be able to do this consult, but I also want to be able to plug into, 
you know, the whole multidisciplinary team without disrupting your on-service, off-service consult rotations. And that's worked reasonably well. I, I just, you know, I'm, when I do a consult, I let them know and I turn it over to the nurse coordinator and she sort of plugs everybody else in. Um, it works largely because they're very, um, you know, they're very busy. They have more than they can do. So it helps for me to help do some of that. Um, but integrating that with a surgical practice and a clinic practice, you know, it's sometimes it works and sometimes it's um, it's overstretched. And so I rely on them to be able to say, I'm not going to be able to do this consult. I really need my colleagues to come in and, and, and do it. And I'll serve as like a consultant or a, an advisor to help advise on the specialty specific stuff, but I need them to do the consult. Yeah. So, you know, the one, the one, the three, one of that's not highly boarded. I, I um, use, uh, I still actually don't use palliative care as much as one may think um, because first of all, it depends if you're an outpatient. <clears throat> um, I, first thing I did, but both of my jobs is find out what the palliative care resources were. And so if you have someone who is has clinic in the same day, adjacent, you know, and I say, hey, there's a chance where we can do a drop-in and, you know, my old job, they could do that. And so, um, and it was mainly for advanced symptom management, right? Um, or I don't know the resources. If somebody wants to talk to their kid about their, their, their cancer diagnosis, I don't have that information. Right. And so they can at least set that up on the inpatient side. I do all the, the, the discussions for advanced directives. Um, oh, and I'll just say the outpatient, everybody that's coming, most of my surgeries are gigantic. And so everyone has to have an advanced directive coming into the operating room. And so I, I, I broach that on the day of my, it's like part of my, my discussion. Um, and I very much normalize it. So at this point, it's my spiel, part of my spiel. It doesn't take any extra time for me for the most part. And um, my NP that works for me actually got certification in palliative care as well. And so we're all in. On the inpatient side, again, it's mostly advanced symptom management or as Red was saying, you know, if somebody's in the ICU after, you know, and it's clearly going to be a prolonged stay, I just don't have the time. Um, you know, I make myself available during the evening, but, you know, it's everybody needs something right um and it's more than i can give as an individual provider so both red and susan were spot on it's to provide support for the team because one of the things that no one talks about is you know you talk about the patient and the family but no one ever talks about the downside for the rest of the providers right and so while i may not need it i think the residents may need it the nurses the nurses are the ones sitting there with the patients sitting with families Residents, you guys are in and out, right? And so, um, you know, thinking holistically about the care that is being provided and uh, the team on both sides is important. So I'm going to shift gears just a little bit. Um, you know, it, it, I'd be remiss not to bring up that this interview is after a whole bunch of current events are happening with COVID-19 and um, systemic racism being addressed and protests. Um, you know, we're going to have Fabian on later to talk a little bit more about uh, the Black Lives Matter. But 
speaking about COVID-19, we know that it's affecting the elderly. It's affecting patients going to the ICU. Even young patients are in the ICU in critical condition. And um, it's also affected hospital policies, frankly, about, you know, COVID-positive patients going to the OR are uh, acknowledged to be DNR in some situations. Um, And so I was kind of wondering from each of you, how has your institution been affected? Um, and from the standpoint, again, of um, thinking about palliation and thinking about these critically ill um, patients that you're seeing or that your hospital is seeing, um, what, what kind of ramifications has this pandemic had? Um, I think, you know, it's, it's um, universally been an issue. I think, you know, for me, um, I'm still providing cancer care, but during most of COVID until recently, I can only uh, uh, operate on people with urgent or emerging issues. And um, they could not have any family members in the hospital. The only category that was relevant to me in my practice that somebody could have family is if you were actively dying, right? And so, um, you know, managing that people with advanced cancer um, in this setting, I was not in the COVID ICUs, um, but clearly, again, as we're talking about the team, I think there was a lot that was needed. And in doing video visits, on my my palliative care colleagues got uh, more adept with this, and you know, these guys talk about it more. But it's very difficult to do, um, and people want their loved ones privately, um, uh, and so again, the toll. Um, is not one, I think it's something that's being measured down the line, um, or the emotional toll that has been um, um, placed upon both providers um, and uh, the patients and their families after this. And I think, you know, just like people, you know, kind of, they don't remember their ICU stay often, and then later on it kind of comes back and hits them. I think that's going to happen to a lot of us uh, down the line. I think my experience has been... Um... I'm grateful I'm in a place that hasn't been hit very hard yet where our numbers are just starting to ramp up. Um, So the way that our service has been affected is one, um, the communication. So really, and, and because I feel strongly about family communication, really taking that time every day to make sure that every family, particularly those for patients in the ICU are updated and then making sure that we document that as well so that we can kind of follow that thread of communication from provider to provider has been one thing. And then two, there's been a lot of talk about this idea of futility, which I think is a difficult conversation, um, mostly because I think that word is sometimes very subjective. And so I'm getting consulted for trachs on patients. And so this is the first time I've ever had to balance. Usually I'm balancing the risk benefit for the patient. And now I'm balancing the benefit for the patient versus the risk for not only myself, but for the other people who may be in the room. And that has been a challenge. And, um, there's not really, everyone has a different opinion of what the right thing to do is. So it is getting back to what are the goals for the patient And can we realistically achieve those goals with this procedure? Now, this is even harder because we don't still really know the the, 
um, natural course of this disease. And so it's been a lot of discussions, challenging. I would echo what Red says. As a, an otolaryngologist, we're you know, on the front line for airway management. And I think one of the most gratifying experiences I've had in Birmingham, Alabama has been the multidisciplinary collaboration on coming together, all the folks who do tracheostomies to make a coherent sort of plan about um, how we're, you know, what kind of PPE is going to be required, what are the indications, what is the trajectory at which point we're going to start talking about doing a tracheostomy. Um, and, and then even after we've sort of set this in, in motion, seeing how things evolve and we get out of the acute phase into the more chronic phase when we have long-term survivors um, and gauging you know, the benefit of a, a tracheostomy versus the, the relative risks. So that's that's been challenging. And as far as having family available, I think the most poignant thing that I've witnessed are patients who simply decline or defer cancer treatment because they can't have family with them in the hospital. And, you know, we sort of accept a four-week window of this as, okay, it's not going to make a huge difference. But when we get past that, it is making a big difference. And then I've started making appeals to our Compassionate Visitation Committee to say, look, this patient is really, you know, delaying life-saving cancer treatment. Their cancer is advancing. Their treatment is going to be different based on their progressed stage. Can, can we make an exception to have family come with them simply because that's the only way they'll consent to come into the hospital and have this needed treatment? So uh, Red and Susan have both brought up um, a little bit of how to speak to patients and families. And so I wanted the next three questions I have are advice on and having some of these discussions. So what advice do you have about delivering bad news? Um, I guess first, first, my, my pushback would be don't think of it as bad news always. Think of it as serious information or, a, you know, a decision to be made. But the, the whole um, phraseology of breaking bad news, I think, puts us in a, a particular mindset. So I guess the advice that I would have about having serious conversations or delivering important information about a diagnosis um, have enough time and sit down. So in my prior job in Texas, we had a terrific initiative called Commit to Sit, um, which one of my colleagues, Mike Underbrink, an laryngologist uh, spearheaded as part of his Physician Leadership Academy capstone. But it put a, a folding chair in each room for a physician to sit in to have a conversation. And I got really used to that. And when I when I moved to Alabama, I'm like, where's the commit to sit chair? Where am I supposed <laughs> to sit down? <laughs> and I thought, you know, standing to have these conversations is that that is a you you've lost before you've begun. And so now I've located a, you know, the workroom, which has these little rolly chairs, and I can bring a rolly chair and I can sit down. But I would say have enough time and commit to sit down. The, and there's more beyond that, and uh, Fabian and Red can speak to that. But from my perspective, time and 
sitting or are the beginning steps? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of tools that are out there um, for for this process. And, you know, I think the, the really, the, the stuff that's formative really is the time of sitting down is good. Also, practice, right? There's nothing that says that the only time that you can do this is um, with um, in this setting, right? And so what I mean by that is, so I took a, uh, I went to Harvard, I took the palliative care education and practice course, PSEP. And um, we um, practice this process, right? Um, and uh, what you learn are there are tools, there are things, like I think a simple reflection versus a complex reflection. Oh, yeah. that almost seems really difficult, right? And, and being in that moment, a complex reflection. So what I'm hearing is you're saying that this is something that's going to be really difficult for you and your family, right? Guess what? Guess where I use that? My wife thinks I can actually communicate properly now after learning, <laughs> right? <laughs> things that I use in my regular life, right? I can talk to my my you know, my father, I'm getting through to him in a way that I wasn't getting through with him before. And so you can use these tools. And just like an attending may say to you, here the trick that you could use when you're doing this, you know, this procedure, right? It's the same kind of thing. It's a it's a, a thing that you have to do regularly to get in the habit and you normalize. So when you get in when you really need to do it, you're gonna be adaptive to it. So Practice would be my the thing that I would uh, say. And yes. I'd add to just come from a honest, heart-centered place. And what I mean by that is I think one of the biggest things I learned in fellowship was just to be very clear with my language. And that includes a lot of uh, using the word dead or dying. But I always tell people that I just want you to know I'm not saying that to be cruel and I'm I, my heart is speaking to yours. And I actually use that language. Um, and then the other thing is just to shut the blank up, which is so hard for me, but to just allow time for the information to sink in. And it is so uncomfortable to be quiet, but I have been amazed at the truths that come out when I just allow that space for them to come up. And you can practice that too. We do it with the fellows. We sit in the office and say, how long yeah. are you supposed to sit? <laughs> I don't know, a minute. Okay, well, let's sit for a minute. And we just look at each other. Like, How did that feel? That felt too long. Okay, so maybe <laughs> so let's work. I mean, we practice it, right? And so they get to feel comfortable. I mean, more comfortable with the idea of sitting in that moment, right? Sitting in that space. That's great. Those were really great tips. Um, Red, you were leading into this. How do you balance telling the truth with maintaining hope? Yeah, such a great question. I had a. Um, mentor, Dr. Stacy Pinder Hughes, who I worked with in Phoenix. And she used to say to patients when they said, well, I'm hoping or praying for a miracle. She used to say, 
I too am hoping for a miracle and I will dance in the streets with you when it happens. And I just, I loved that idea. So I use that language as well, that I too am hoping for this, but now this is a classic palliative care tool. I hope for this, but I fear this, or I'm worried about this, or I'm concerned about this. So I acknowledge where they're coming from. And honestly, I want that too. Who doesn't want everyone to live a good life forever? But I just kind of balance that with my medical judgment that I'm very concerned that this will happen. I, I practice using, you know, the but sometimes people don't like that. You know, I hope, but they're like, wait a minute. Cause you, you know, it's like the backhanded comment. You look great, but <laughs> so I practice, I've been trying to use, look at for other words and sometimes and, you know, it works. It's simple, right? Like I hope for this and I'm also concerned that, you know, you, you know, so you have to kind of feel out the situation. That's where the practice kind of comes in. But I, I try and be cognizant of that. So I, I practice in Alabama, um, which has a, a strong um, faith-based uh, community and value system. And I find, and I, I find that it's very important for me when I express medical um, opinion or research findings that I characterize them as biomedical research, what man knows and acknowledge that, um, that we don't know everything and, and pay respect to the, the religious beliefs that my patients have. Um, not so much to val to straight up validate what they're saying, but to acknowledge that what the knowledge that I have is not omnipotent or omniscient, but bounded by medical research, and that I am hoping with them, like Red and Fabian said, for a miracle, and that I will for sure dance in the streets with them. And I find that I have I really have found great reinforcement in reaching out to my patients' faith communities and their pastors when maybe their prognostic awareness is not the greatest and they are very focused on being positive and hoping, but I know that the outcome is likely to be not what they're hoping. To reach out to their pastors and say, I know that they're reaching to you as well and you, you may be a little less emotionally you know, involved right at this moment. Let's talk about what is likely to happen and what we're hoping for and how to negotiate the space between that. And that's really enriched my practice where I am now. From all of this, really what I think summarizes our conversation thus far is, you know, take the time, really invest in learning about how to have these conversations and what these conversations are. Take the time to meet with community members like you have that would affect these patients and their belief systems let silence be, just let it be and sit in silence and be okay with that and practice, practice in your everyday life, utilizing some of the tools that you learn and having these conversations with patients. So moving on, I wanna to go to our um, last segment here, which we usually call our tips and tricks, but this is gonna be a um, kind of case-based uh, scenario where uh, we'll talk about the commonly tested questions that appear on our app site that pertain to palliative care. 
Um, so Red, we're gonna start with you. What is the difference between palliative care and hospice care? Great question. So palliative care is multidisciplinary care that is meant to be given alongside or can be given alongside disease-modifying treatment and usually given by a multidisciplinary team. Hospice is a subset of that, and it's reserved for patients who have six months or less to live, though it is important to know that hospice patients can live for many more than six months. <laughs> it's also meant for patients who no longer want to pursue disease-modifying treatment. So it's not just the six months, it's making sure that the goals of care are aligned, that they are no longer interested in disease-modifying treatment, and they just want to really focus on comfort and quality of life. Great. Um, so Fabian, we have a 90-year-old patient. She has a hip fracture and she has a DNR order. Her daughter is her power of attorney and she wants the, her uh, mother to have surgical repair. What do you do? So we, you know, I think with those situations, we would have to um, engage in shared decision-making. Um, we would talk with, uh, see, make sure first that the patient is um, uh, able to uh, consent for herself um, and figure out what her uh, wishes are. Um, and, um, and, and also discuss what the, the downside of an operation is. The mortality for post-hip fracture is actually pretty high. Um, and so making sure, and the morbidity as well, and so making sure that both the patient um, and their loved one understand uh, what, the, what uh, the, uh, the downstream of operative intervention would be. Um, and based upon that shared decision-making, I think most people would um, uh, either decide against an operation and more conservative measures, um, or if they, and you certainly, if this is on there, there'll be other things like best case, worst case scenario, like Western Swarzy is popularized, um, that would work really well in that scenario uh, so that they can understand um, what they're getting into. So the specific question that I had seen on SCORE from this, um, in the answer choice, among the answer choices, the actual correct one was about rescinding the DNR order for surgery only. Um, what are your thoughts on that? <laughs> so you have to, it depends on where you are. So some places um, you'd have to, first of all, you'd have to understand every hospital doesn't have the same um, um, guidelines about rescinding a, a DNR. Also, um, you would have to then also communicate with your anesthesiologist uh, because it's not unusual um, in those scenarios because I've been around that and that you say, oh, we'll rescind it. The anesthesiologist says, heck no, I'm never going to put this patient to sleep. And then now you're calling ethics and people and the patients are sitting there in the, in the pre-op waiting, right? And so I think there are Times when it is very reasonable to rescind a DNR, you want to make sure you're having a conversation not just with um, the um, um, those people I talked about, but also with the patient. What is the length of time, right? And so you have to revisit that. Um, and usually, you set a predetermined time frame and saying, you know, we'll rescind this for the next 24, 48, 72 hours, and then we'll resume that and make sure we're all on the same page, not just with the patient, but the family members who may be the ones that are actually now going to be making the decisions post-operatively. Can I add one thing, Megana? Go ahead. I, 
I think it is really important for residents and even attendings to know that the American College of Surgeons and the American Society of Anesthesiologists and the Association of Perioperative Nurses all have statements on this very topic of a DNR in the OR. And the American College of Surgeons does recommend this, what they call required reconsideration, that we do need to have this discussion with the patient, the family, and yes, like Fabian said, you really need to include the anesthesiologist in this discussion. And that even when I've been told by some hospitals that, oh, it's quote unquote protocol to rescind, automatically rescind the DNR, that really does go against patient autonomy. And oftentimes there is a form that patients and then the surgeon or anesthesiologist can sign that says, okay, we're either going to uphold this or we're going to rescind it. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, so Susan, um, a lot of times we think of palliative care just as a uh, specialty of, or multidisciplinary team that has conversations, but it also is its palliative medicine. So our next case, it's a 48-year-old man with bone mets from lung cancer who's on high-dose opioids, and he has constipation. He's currently taking DocuSate and Senna. What is the next step in managing his constipation? Oh, this feels like an extra hard medicine question for a surgeon. <laughs> when I initiate patients on opioids, I counsel them about opioid-induced constipation and place them on daily laxative and stool softener. And with, you know, sort of rescue suppository or enema as needed. Um, but I, I feel like if somebody gets into trouble with opioid-induced constipation using one of the, you know, mu receptor-specific um, medications like uh, methylnaltrexone to reverse that to achieve a, you know, bowel evacuation is helpful. I found that that's too expensive to use on a chronic basis, so it's more on an ad hoc basis, but I try to prophylax this from the beginning with diet and, um, and daily bowel regimen. And at what point would you consider um, a loop colostomy, a palliative colostomy? Well, one, I would want to make sure that all of my medical options have been um, already utilized thoroughly. But then I do think before I would operate on someone, I really would go back to that. One, what is their prognosis? Two, what are their goals of care? And is a procedure going to help me achieve them? If it's in line with their goals of care and they're not moving their bowels at all, then I think it is appropriate to start considering. Great, Fabian, we'll get back to you here. So you have a patient who's on comfort care and uh, they've developed air hunger. They're dyspneic, they have mild tachycardia, they're minimally responsive. How do you treat this? So I'm, again, since I'm not the palliative care board person, I will say, you know, often with, uh, if I'm, uh, sometimes it's, uh, I think it's, you actually need many narcotic management if, if I'm wrong. It's okay, but I think it's narcotic management. Um, but I think for me, the bigger sign, and, and my friends can correct me if I'm wrong, is this may be a sign of imminent demise. Um, and so I think for me, the bigger thing is recognition of that um, as a non palliative care board person. 
um, and then um, moving towards, I probably at that point would have had one of my palliative care physicians involved in here to make sure that they're And uh, we'll return to that case scenario in just a second, but you brought up imminent demise. And that is something that shows up, you know, what are the signs of imminent demise? Um, What would you say are are signs that you would look at? Man, this, uh, I think I'd fail the website right now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, certainly if, if you just reference, I think, you know, certainly shorter cell breathing, you have people that start having hallucinations. Um, you know, sometimes people uh, who have been relatively attended all of a sudden have this moment where they're more alert um, in a, for a short period of time. Um, those are things that I think about, um, you know, um, uh, anorexia, the, you know, not, not wanting to eat at all is another one that I would reference. I just add um, modeling of the extremities. You're not going to be able to uh, palpate their uh, distal pulses anymore. And again, that that terminal delirium. And also, anytime someone starts talking about, um, actually, we had some man in hospice the other day saying, my brother's outside. And we said, well, what is he doing? He's like, he's waiting for me to go to the cemetery with him. Like he, I always say that the veil is getting very thin between here yes. and there. And so a lot of times people will start uh, talking or calling out for dead relatives and, and that they know more than us. So that's a sign that time is probably very short. Can I just say, and this is uh, going to be it's a segue to the next time we speak, um, George Floyd called out for his dead mother. Yes. Oh, so true. Thank you. Yes. It was so poignant. It spoke to so many. Yes. It didn't even realize, made that connection. That's very, very poignant. Um, so circling back to the case, um, one of the, I think this is a palliative care term. So Susan, um, can you define for us the uh, principle or the doctrine of double effect? It's used in the in the world of bioethics, and it means that you're going to do something, and you your intention is one thing, but you know that you may have another effect. So you're if. I have someone who has air hunger and they're suffering and I give them opioids and benzodiazepines. My intention is to ease their air hunger, but the ultimate effect may be to hasten their death. And the fact that my intention is not to hasten their death is what counts and the fact that death hastening happens is the double effect that doesn't sort of act against me morally so i may not have said that exactly right but it is the idea that if you're going to do something you need to know why you're doing it and the reason that you're doing it needs to outweigh the effect that you know that it may have, even though that's not the effect that you intend. So typically we use it to talk about using um, opioids and benzodiazepines to ease air hunger 
at the risk of hastening death. And there's plenty of research that demonstrates that it does not actually hasten death if used in a proportional palliative way, but it remains a pertinent controversy in bioethics. I wish I could be more articulate, but that's my answer. I, I think that was a great answer. Um, okay, Red, we have another general surgery consult for you. There's a 90-year-old man. He has advanced dementia, and he has failure to thrive. So you've been consulted for a palliative G-tube. What are your considerations? No. That's the short and correct answer. But really, the, the longer answer is one, especially anyone with dementia, we really need, I think the literature definitely supports us not pursuing um, any sort of feeding tube for multiple reasons. One, feeding tubes have not been shown to increase the lifespan in those with dementia. Two, interestingly, they haven't been shown to um, help with wound healing either, even though theoretically you would think if this person has a wound and I increase their nutrition, it will help them. And lastly, I think it can do a lot of harm because people with dementia are not going to remember to not pull out their tube. So what ends up happening is we do a procedure on them and then we have to restrain them, which just increases their delirium because they are, and then they have delirium and dementia. And so I think the downside of this or it's something that you might hear from the family is, but I'm starving, I'm going to starve my loved one. And so I would say, this is where hand feeding comes in. You know, we can continue to offer food. Once people stop wanting to eat, that is them entering the dying process. That's another sign of imminent death, right? We're no longer, our bodies are physiologically no longer able to metabolize nutrients. And so kind of just, there is, um, you know, I think a lot of us in this country show our love to people with food. And so there's a lot of emotional baggage that comes with this discussion. And this is definitely something that um, the discussion around saying no could take longer than just doing the procedure. But I feel very strongly that we as surgeons are not just technicians, that we should be involved in the conversation as well, and that we're allowed to say this is not appropriate. So I find what happens on the side, on the side is I uh, and get involved and then they sidetrack me and call the GI docs um, and the tube, right? And so the medicine docs, have, you know, they call me for a palliative obstruction. Um, we have advanced endoscopists that will put a hole between anything. Um, and um, uh, and they, they're adept at it, but they don't see those folks anymore. And so, yes. Will it functionally work? Yes. What to do with duodenal colostomy, uh, colotomy, um, so people can poop their brains out, um, uh, and, you know, which is what's going to happen, right? You're obstructed. Um, you know, uh, I think it's, 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 to me, it's, it's wrong. Um, and that question is actually a very, as you just heard from uh, Brett, it's a very loaded one, um, because I think there's a lot of conversation clearly that goes on. Should going around it, but the, the other thing is, right, G-tubes, they reimburse well, right? And so I, I have asked, you know, other people, you know, um, and I'm not a trauma surgeon, so I, I, uh, those are the folks that get asked more, but 
you know, the bottom line, you have to, how do you balance the bottom line? It's a simple request um, for a lot of, in some instances, people think that, but it's not that simple when you think about the, the downstream. I won't even tell you what that question and the answer was, because you're all going to hate it. Um, so let's just move on to our, um, the final, uh, it was actually two cases, but we'll just combine it to talk about, we always get questions about, um, you know, the hierarchy, the power of attorney, who's the patient, uh, surrogate de decision maker. So, um, say you have an 80 year old woman with metastatic breast cancer and she presents with necrotizing fasciitis of her lower leg. She has altered mental status. Son wants her to have surgery. Daughter doesn't think that she would want an amputation um, because it'd be too aggressive. What exactly should you do? What is kind of the order of going through um, addressing that uh, discrepancy between the children? All right. So I think the first thing is to, one, remember that Healthcare power of attorneys and living wills and advanced directives don't really come into play until someone loses their medical, their capacity to make complex medical decisions, which it sounds like she did because she has altered mental status. The first question I'd ask is, does she have a legal document which names a healthcare power of attorney? So a lot of our patients do not have that, but she may have that. And to assume that she named her children is incorrect because you can name anyone over 18 years old. If she does not have that, then we have to consider what state we live in. So every state has a different list that lists, if you do not have a health care power of attorney, then we ask this person, then this person, then this person. The majority of states, if not all of them, will list the spouse first. If her spouse has died or if she's divorced, then it goes to number two. And that number two is very different in every state. Where I trained, it was the... Um, it was the adult children. Where I live now in North Carolina, it is the majority of reasonably available adult children and parents. So yes. you can imagine, you might be 50 years old and have three adult kids and have a mother and a father. And so we need to know who we're talking to before we start getting into this. And then the next thing I'll say is once we decide who the, or once we realize who the surrogate decision maker is, I like to sit down with everyone because we're supposed to be using substituted judgment and I ask, if mom could talk to us right now, what would she say? And just inviting her into the room, even if she's not like really in the room, that will often elicit some really powerful statements. And then if we can't come to a decision, that's where I may involve palliative care if they're available. But you know, neck fash comes in at two in the morning. So oftentimes they're not available. <laughs> Sorry. In what scenarios do you um, declare a surgery an emergency and get another physician involved to corroborate that assessment? If I'm not able to um, figure out who the medical decision maker is or they're not available, then I, I have kind of a low threshold. If I truly feel it is an emergency and which, you know, some of these emergency general surgery cases really are an emergency that you need to go in the next hour or two, I don't have any issues getting a second physician to say that this is emergent. I agree. I, I always err on the side of life. Um, so in the moment, if we have to move forward, I'll double doc. 
a procedure to go ahead if we can't find family or a consenting surrogate. Um, always keeping in mind that as we move forward, we can do time limited trials and and you know discontinue technological life support. But in an acute moment, without clear guidance, I'll err on the side of intervention. Well, this was fantastic. I think it was very educational and I hope all of our listeners appreciate the conversations that we had here. Um, There's so much more to learn and hopefully all of our programs start integrating palliative medicine a lot more into them. Um, But thank you all for joining us here today. And uh, if anyone has, if any of you have any final um, resources that you want our listeners to check out, um, we can include them in the show notes if you want to let us know. I just want all the surgical residents to know that fellowships are available for surgery residents. More and more um, hospice and palliative medicine programs are open to taking surgeons because they realize how hardworking and how awesome we are. And quite a few surgical residents have used some of their research time to do a fellowship. So anyone who's completed three years of Surgical residency is eligible to apply for fellowships, and we actually have, um, I can give you a link to a list of programs that we know are more um, open to taking surgical candidates. Until next time, dominate the day. 